What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Okay, here's an email from Michael. This is really a good Bigfoot story. I grew up in western North Carolina, two miles from the Blue Ridge Parkway. I love camping and being as far away from people as possible. So in the late fall of 1992, I talked a friend of mine into going camping with me to a place called Graveyard Fields. My car was in the shop at the time, so he would have to drive. He said he had to work, so he could only stay one night. Well, I arranged to be picked up four days from the start of our trip. This was in the days before cell phones, and that meant when my friend left, I would be truly on my own, which was fine with me. The day was cool, and it was nice. The skies were blue overhead as we parked in the parking area and prepared for the two to three mile hike in with all of our supplies. I had convinced my friend to help me carry in a cooler full of drink that we called PJ. This was corn liquor, fruit punch, citrus soda, and whatever kind of fresh fruit was available. It was heavy, but I kept telling my buddy that it would be worth it. We didn't see but a couple of people on our way in, and I knew the perfect, well-secluded place to camp off the trail. We made it to the laurel thicket and then had to find a way to get through them without ripping ourselves to pieces. And when we did, it opened up into a small grassy area with a small feeder creek 15 feet from where the tent would be. We got the camp set up and a fire started, and then we made ourselves a cup of PJ. And when we started getting hungry, I made us some tinfoil dinners. I seasoned some ground beef and cut up some potatoes and onions and carrots, and I wrapped them tight and put them in the coals to cook. And it was great. Around dark, we were talking and wondering if anyone else was crazy enough to camp in the temperatures dropping below freezing when we heard a woo-hoo. I was pretty sure that it was other campers a ways off, so I answered back, woo-hoo! We did this several times until it got late, then we decided to turn in. It was an uneventful night. The next morning, we woke up with frost on our sleeping bags so we were in a hurry to stoke the fire and get warm. Shortly after breakfast, my buddy told me, Man, I gotta go. Are you sure you're gonna be okay for three days way up here by yourself? Yeah, I'll be fine, I told him. My ride would be there before noon on the third day. 
He took off, and I spent the day getting wood and then relaxing at camp. Around dusk, I decided to make a small pot of stew. Not that canned stuff, but some real beef tips and vegetables cooked over the fire in some good beef stock. It takes a while to cook, so it wasn't ready until after dark. And by then, I'd had a few drinks. I made a bowl and sat back and looked up at the stars. It was a clear night, and the sky was beautiful. And then I heard that call again. Woo-hoo! It was still a good ways off. I sat for a minute, and I wondered if I should answer back before finally responding with my own whoop. All went silent for a few minutes, and then came an answering whoop, and it still sounded like it was at least several football fields away. I sat and thought about what kind of idiot I really am. If this is others with bad intentions, I'm giving my location away each time I answer back, and I decided to turn in for the night. Sometime in the morning, before daylight, I could have sworn I heard someone or something walking near the laurel bushes that surrounded my campsite. I chose this campsite because it is almost impossible in the daylight to find a way through the laurels. At night, I imagine you'd tear yourself to pieces trying to get through it. I was very tuned in, but after a while of not hearing anything else, I drifted back to sleep. Once again, I woke with frost on my sleeping bag, and after warming up by the fire, I decided to see if I could find where and what was walking by the laurels. I looked and I looked, but I didn't see any tracks or anything else that would indicate anyone had been there, and I spent the rest of the day gathering wood for the night to come. I had a huge fire going before dark, and I decided to cook dinner. The last night of camping, I always liked to eat good. I was going to have a T-bone and potatoes and onions. The smell of that cooking was heavenly. I still had some PJ left, and I was not about to carry it out alone, so I started in on making sure the cooler was empty when I left. After I ate, I was sitting there enjoying the night and looking at the stars when here came another whoop. This time it sounded like it was closer than the night before. It came from my one o'clock. I was quiet and didn't answer this time. And then suddenly another whoop came from my six o'clock and it was only a couple of hundred yards away. And I guess this kind of freaked me out. I hadn't seen any other campers the whole time I'd been there. I was sitting there thinking about what this might be when another whoop came from my one o'clock and it was much closer this time. Right after that, a loud whoop came from my six o'clock, and I decided to stoke the fire, and I stacked plenty of wood on it before getting into my tent. I laid there in my sleeping bag, intently listening, and another whoop came from my one o'clock, and it sounded closer still, followed by a whoop again from my six o'clock that was very loud, and yes, even closer. I was getting nervous, At this point, I pulled my Case XX hunting knife out of its sheath and I laid still. And then I heard footsteps at my six. Not light footsteps, but heavy. I swear I could feel them in the ground. And then I heard more footsteps at my one o'clock. Oh man, I thought, what am I supposed to do now? I decided it was best to lie as still as possible because whatever was walking out there was big enough to shake the ground. 
It had to be huge, and there seemed to be two of them. I heard branches breaking, and then because the fire was still blazing, I saw a huge shadow on my tent. I heard my pots and pans being moved and the lid of my cooler that still had fruit from the PJ in it being opened. Another shadow from my one o'clock crossed my tent and joined the other one at the cooler. There was quite a bit of fruit left in there. The thing about that fruit is the longer it sits in the PJ, the more alcohol it absorbs. This fruit had been soaking up alcohol for four days, and it had to be strong. I was a nervous wreck, but I managed to stay still as I heard my stuff being thrown around, and eventually the two shadows disappeared in the direction of my one o'clock. Needless to say, I did not sleep at all. At daylight, I unzipped my tent and I saw all my stuff all over the place, and I decided to pack up and head to the parking area ASAP. The hike out was uneventful, and I got to the parking area two hours before my ride was due to arrive. That was okay with me. At least I was okay. I'm not really sure what was in my camp that night, but I have a pretty good idea. I still can't, but I'm always armed with a long rifle and a 44 mag handgun. I don't want to wind up missing. Michael, I bet you don't, and that would have scared the crap out of me. I mean, <laughs> to be laying there with the light illuminating the outside of your tent, you actually see these two creatures, or whatever they are, shadows, digging through your gear, and there's really nothing you can do about it. I mean, do you step out and confront them, or do you just lay there like you did, be totally silent, maybe even act like you're asleep, and hope they go away? Apparently, that's the way that works. So guys, take note of this. If you're ever out camping by yourself, shadows start walking around your tent, just lay real still. There's a proven method to survive a night with Bigfoot coming into your camp. I thought this story was great, Michael. Thanks for sending it. Welcome to the podcast, Dixie Cryptid on YouTube and the What If It's True podcast on the Podcast Network. You can listen to us everywhere. Everywhere. All right, enough talking. Let's jump into this video or podcast. Come on, here we go. All right, here's kind of an odd story. I don't know the name of the writer, and that doesn't matter. I got this quite a while back. Anyway, I just think it's an interesting story. It's really odd. This person writes, There's a McDonald's that is four stories tall where I grew up. It was pretty big news when it was built. The tall slides were a local landmark for a while. Our middle school went there for field trips, and our track team would run to the tower and back for practice. It was at the center of a square used for car shows and pep rallies. The four-story playground was paradise for children and teenagers. The ball pit, the rope bridge, the N64 games kept everyone entertained while the slides were the main attraction. It was quite the climb up, but the payoff was sure worth it. The giant slide was equivalent to the top thrill dragster at Cedar Point. It was a thrill ride, especially with our modification. 
We would sneak the food trays up with us and bobsled them down the slide at super high speeds. We were thrown out and chased out a couple of times after some trays were broken. The evil Knievel stunts were a blast, but they were nothing compared to what happened one innocent summer morning. We walked from Southwick to the McDonald's for some breakfast. I had hot cakes and sausage with water. The boys ordered their meals and met me in the back to eat. We played Madden on the consoles and I enjoyed free refills of Powerade with their cups. The place was fairly busy, but we pretty much had free roam of the entire back area, and that was our hangout spot. It came time to watch them play and I figured I would burn some time, and I started wandering around looking for coins and dropped knickknacks. I was inspecting around under a table when a kid tapped me on the shoulder and said someone was looking for me. I figured it was one of my buddies. I was confused, but I climbed into the jungle gym and I began crawling to the top. I didn't know what to expect. Was one of my friends from school hanging out at the top and watching us play all along? Was it a girl that I knew? I moved slowly, checking every corner as I sprawled through the cushion and rope. There was a strange feeling in the tube, and I could tell that something was up here with me. I arrived at the top, and I didn't see anyone, and I retraced my steps, and I felt something cold in the center of the facility. I creeped closer, slowly, expecting someone to jump out and scare me, and I heard some movement, and I turned to the corner to a new section of the playground that I never entered before. I must have been oblivious to this bonus compartment all along. The air was crisp, and it felt like I was outside. I was in a new world, and I crawled on my hands and knees, and it opened up into a larger chamber. I didn't know where I was, and I rubbed my eyes to make sure that I wasn't dreaming. And then I was startled when I heard a voice. It was familiar, but I couldn't recognize the source. I turned around, and to my surprise was my childhood friend Max. I hadn't seen him in a decade when his family moved away. He looked like he hadn't aged since the day he moved. I asked him what was up, what was going on. He just smiled and said that he had fun at my birthday party, and that he missed playing soccer at recess together. I told him that I hope he was doing well and that I tried looking him up and he breathed slow and softly said that he was in a better place, and I gasped, and I connected the dots. Max smiled and said they finally built the playground that we've been calling for, the slides that touch the sky. He laughed and replied that we thought we had it good at Burger King. That playground on Boston was the birthday party he was referencing. I was excited to tell him about the tray trick that we were using to get up speed. He said he knew exactly what I was talking about that he had been watching. I told him to meet me up at the top and I'd be right back. And I crawled back down to reality and the light blinded my eyes. And I snuck quickly and grabbed a tray and I scurried back up and was surprised when he was nowhere to be found. I searched for a few minutes but I could feel that he was with me and I set up a tray and took off full throttle. Max was with me the whole way. I could feel his grip on my shoulders, and we twisted and turned and laughed. When I reached the end of the tunnel, Max's blanket of energy was gone, 
but I was not sad. We completed our mission. I knew he was waiting for that moment, and somewhere in my spirit I was too. Max was my best friend, but in the days before cell phones, when a friend moved away, you just wish you had a chance to say goodbye. I had had my last chance. What a great, heartwarming story. That's all I can say about that. I'm kind of awestruck at how sweet this story was. Thank you to the writer for sending it. I really, really enjoyed it and appreciate them sending it to me. And for everyone to hear, thank you very much. This story comes from a lady who says it's true, and it falls into the category of elementals and psychic powers. When I was in my late teens, I was asked to work at a music camp in Ontario, Canada. As a member of the staff, I was required to arrive a couple of days early. I met another girl, and our job was to get the cabins ready for the students to occupy them. On day one, we worked to clean the cabins and got the kitchens cleaned. That night, the two of us chose which cabin we would sleep in, and we went to bed. We laid there absolutely silent, exhausted by all the work we'd done that day. After a few minutes, we heard footsteps. We were both still awake, and now we were wide awake. We heard the steps coming up from the basement. They were getting closer and closer. We listened as it moved through the cabin, coming towards us. When it got to us, we could smell it. Even with my eyes shut, I could see it. I knew I would be in danger if I made eye contact with it. It was ancient with long black hair. It stopped, and I think it studied us for a moment. But when we didn't respond, it moved on. It was an elemental. It was evil. It smelled like death, and it was putrid. In the morning, we discussed it. I was told that some of the students from the previous year had dabbled in black magic. They had conjured this thing up. There were other things that were also reported to me that occurred the previous year, but I won't mention those. I've always been aware of my own psychic abilities, so I was alarmed at students experimenting with black magic. They had no idea what they had done. We discussed what had happened with the executive of the camp who brought someone in to deal with it. I don't know of any further occurrences that might have happened that year, but a dark, uneasy feeling hung over us the rest of the time we were there. Many years later, I had a reading by a shaman and took the opportunity to ask him about it. He was the one who told me it was an elemental that had been conjured. He also told me that he had never seen an aura like mine. It's pink. I know I have protection. I have had many psychic experiences throughout my life. I have a natural knowing that can't be explained. I did nothing to get it. It's just part of me. In fact, it runs in the family. My mother had it, as did her mother. At Christmas, the year I was 17, I was working in a nursing home and waiting for my grandmother to pass. She'd been in a coma for two weeks. She awoke and we were all summoned to the hospital. She saw us and smiled and raised her hand to point upward. I knew she was telling us that she'd been in heaven for those two weeks. We all kissed her and went home. Two days later, while I was working in the kitchen of the nursing home, I was hit by a jolt of electricity in my solar plexus. Along with that sensation came the immediate knowledge that my grandmother had said goodbye to me. 
she'd passed. I waited for the phone call to come from the hospital, telling the nursing home to let her bed go. About two minutes later, it rang. I knew the nurse on duty would be coming to tell me about my grandmother. As she entered from the hall, my co-worker entered from the dining room. I stopped her and said, I already know. She burst into tears. My co-worker was confused, so I explained that my grandmother had just passed. They were both stunned that I knew without the benefit of a telephone. My grandmother and I were very close, though. My mother had nearly died when I was born, and I had spent the first month of my life in her care. I suppose this is the reason we were so attached to each other. There really are spiritual attachments. Since then, I've known many times when people were going to die. I even saw a murder, but that's a story for another day. Let me know if you're interested. Well, my dear, I'm pretty sure Cam will be interested, and if not, I certainly am. So send us that story. I'd love to read it. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is a wonderful story. It's kind of a scary story. I hope you guys like it. I don't know who, the name of the writer. Let's see. She just, she just signs it, Utah Desert Girl. And that's good enough. That's good enough. Let's jump into it. I was raised in the desert area of Utah in the small town of Caneville, population 15 on a good day when everyone was home. This town was so remote, it was 30 miles to the west to the nearest town and 20 miles to the east of Hanksville, which is just north of Height Marina on Lake Powell. Only a handful of cars passed through our town on Highway 24 on a busy day. My father was a desert tour guide and he knew the Utah desert like the back of his hand. So I was raised rough camping in the desert with my parents and their friends. For several years in the spring, Dad would lead a group called the Wonder Bunch on a three-day camp trip into the desert and canyons of Utah. They called themselves the Wonder Bunch because they always wondered where they were going, and wondered who would be going, and wondered when they would make it back. I loved going on the Wonder Bunch camp trips, which usually had 75 to 100 people in the group. Every night, after eating a great meal, several men would get out their musical instruments and play songs around the campfire. My dad played guitar, one man played a banjo, and another played a harmonica, etc. While they played, some of the others would clear an area of brush and rock so we could dance in the sand. Most of the time, square dancing or doing the old-fashioned waltz or two-step. And if people didn't want to dance, they just sat listening to the music or singing along if they wanted. 
It was usually long after the moon had come up and the fire had died down that we would finally retire to our beds beneath the stars. In May of 1968, when I was 15, I talked my dad into letting me take five of my girlfriends on a weekend camp trip, a girls-only trip. Since we were teenagers, their mothers were concerned that some of the local boys might find us and cause trouble. So Dad promised that he would take us where no one would be able to find us. He wouldn't even tell me where he was going to ensure no boys could find us. On Friday, after school, we loaded all of our camping gear and six girls into Dad's 1966 International Travel All and we headed out to the desert for a girls' weekend of giggling and fun. Dad loved to entertain and pull practical jokes, so at the right time, on our way into the desert, he stopped the vehicle, saying, I'm sorry, girls, but I have to wee. Of course, being in the desert, there wasn't any bush or large boulder in sight. While Dad stepped out of the travel all, the girls turned their heads and covered their eyes. And then we heard Dad yell, Wee! Long and loud before getting back into the driver's seat and continuing on our way. Of course, <laughs> of course, the girls had a big laugh over that joke. After an hour, we stopped at the head of the Caneville Wash, about five to seven miles from my home. We hurriedly unloaded our gear, and Dad told us that he would be back to pick us up on Sunday afternoon before he waved and he drove away. There was a full moon that weekend, and Friday night went really well. We set up camp and spread our bedrolls in a line in the bottom of the wash where it was sandy and soft, and then roasted hot dogs around a small campfire. Since it had been a fairly long day, we went to bed as soon as it got dark, and all went well that night. On Saturday morning, after eating breakfast of burned bacon and pancakes and eggs, we straightened up camp and decided to do a little exploring of the area. I loved to gather rocks as my dad had taught me the difference between petrified wood, dinosaur bone, jasper, quartz, flint, and other types of rocks. The wash had several small canyons and gullies that ran off of it, which were perfect for rock hounding, so we hiked some of them until it started to gently rain. We hurried back to camp and stowed our gear on a ledge beneath an overhanging cliff so it wouldn't get wet. The storm was just a summer cloudburst that only lasted a few minutes, so when it was done and the sun came out again, we decided it was time to suntan. We spread our bedrolls back out, since we were up on a small canyon in the middle of the desert with no one around us for miles. We stripped down to our bras and panties and then laid face down on our sleeping bags to get a good tan on our backs. And then someone suggested we didn't want to get the bra line on our backs, so we unhooked the back of our bras and just laid there in the sun. All of a sudden, one of the girls noticed a jet flying over, so we all squealed and jumped up and ran to the overhanging cliff leaving six white bras lying in a row on our bedrolls. After a moment of panic, we realized a jet flying that high, probably at 30,000 feet, couldn't see us anyway. But our suntanning mood was over, so we got dressed again, and we did a little more exploring before it was time to cook supper. 
I remember at the very head of the wash was a natural seep with just enough water for us to wash our hands and do the supper cleanup. Before long, the sun had set and our day of fun was over, so we put out the fire and we crawled into our beds that were still at the bottom of the wash, and we quickly fell asleep. Sometime in the night, we were awakened by a small sprinkling of raindrops. I told the girls we needed to move our beds out of the wash and up under the overhanging cliffs so we wouldn't get caught in a flash flood if it rained any harder. The desert canyons of Utah are notorious for flash floods. If people aren't cautious and aware of the weather and their surroundings, they can end up in a life-threatening situation. Throughout the years, Dad had rescued several people who had been caught or stranded by flash floods. Anyway, the moon was full that weekend, so we had no trouble gathering up our beds and quickly getting underneath the overhang out of the rain that was coming down a little harder now. And as soon as we were all under the overhang, before we even got a chance to spread out our beds, a light came down from the sky and began to search the area in the wash where we had been sleeping only moments before. The beam of the searchlight was 15 to 20 feet in diameter, and it was coming straight down from the sky. However, there was no engine noise, only the hushed breathing of six terrified girls. One of the girls tried to stick her head out from underneath the overhang to see where the light was coming from, but three of the other girls held her back for fear that she would give away our hiding place. We realized the light was not normal, and we sensed something sinister was happening, and we were frightened. Like I mentioned, there was no motor noise of any type of noise, just the silence of the desert. And we watched in fear, and the light searched our camp area, and it swept the bed of the wash where we had previously been sleeping, and up the side of the hills and cliffs that lined the wash. After ten minutes, the search beam of light disappeared. We saw a bright light shoot to the north and do a 90-degree turn and shoot to the east and over the horizon. It was gone in a matter of seconds. There was a temporary military base to the east of us, maybe 30 miles, between Hanksville and Green River, Utah, and I have wondered if it had anything to do with this incident. It took a while for us to settle down and go back to bed and sleep the rest of the night. I might also mention that there was a small flood that went through our camp and right down the wash where we had been sleeping earlier. Thankfully, no one was hurt. None of our camping gear was washed away. The next day was Sunday, and it was just afternoon when Dad came to pick us up. We excitedly told him what had happened and how the light had come down from the sky and had been searching for us. The blood drained from his face, and he just said, Hurry and pack your stuff. We need to get going. So we loaded everything in his trusty travel all, and he drove us back to town. It wasn't until many years later, when I was an adult, that I learned about the many strange objects he had seen in the skies of southeastern Utah. As I remember this night in the desert, I'm very thankful that we were protected and not abducted. In my heart, I feel the Lord saved us by sending that small shower to wake us up and get us to move underneath the overhang where we couldn't be seen from above.
I can only imagine how horrific Dad's life would have been had us girls gone missing, especially since he was the only one who knew where we were and the last one to see us on that Friday night when he dropped us off to start our camping adventure. Throughout my teenage years, I saw other strange lights in the sky, but they were not as frightful as this one. This craft was definitely looking for us. It's a puzzle to me how it knew where we were. I know Daddy didn't tell them, and, as Dad promised, the boys didn't find our camp, but the UFO certainly did, and she signs off, Utah Desert Girl. Utah Desert Girl, what a great story. I I had this image when you were describing the light beam, of course. (laughs) Everything in my head always goes back to uh, Close Encounters, the Steven Spielberg movie, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, and those lights, when Richard Dreyfuss is trapped right there on top of those railroad tracks. In the distance, you can see uh, as the UFO moves over him and goes past him, that light kind of beaming down, kind of hums and beams down and then goes out, comes back on again and goes out and illuminates the road below. What a cool experience. And I know it was scary for you guys, but I would love to see that. I would love, love, love to see something like that. But anyway, thank you for the story. It was a wonderful story. And I think that's going to wind this podcast up. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Thank you guys for listening, and we'll see you on the next one. Appreciate you.